And uh, while you're transitioning, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. And we'll see where we are on the... Alright, Revelation chapter 1. We began last week a new study. And uh, hopefully again we saw to be a study of anticipation. Though it's a, a time of uh, great concern for me, for I know that I want to teach it truthfully, and I want to teach it honestly, and I want to teach it fully, and honestly coming into it, I can't tell you that I feel fully equipped to do that, but I do feel that it's led of the Lord for us to spend time in this book right now, and, um, and so I look forward to what, what Christ is going to reveal to us in this revelation of Christ, if you would, and last week we began in our study, looking at chapter 1, Steve has read through it again today, and Last week as we looked at it, we considered the purpose um, of the book. We considered then the promise as well in this chapter. And so as we saw the purpose, we looked at um, of this little section. Let me go back. We looked at the outline, if you would. And the outline was in verse 19. And where Jesus Christ tells John to write the things which have been, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so right now we're in that section of looking at the things which have been. And... We're told then the purpose of this writing is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then there's two, twofold in that, and I'm not going to go through that whole outline again, but again, twofold understanding of that concept of the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is the revelation, there is the, the teaching which God gave, if you would, the Father gave the Son to reveal to us. But even more fully, there is the concept of revealing Jesus Christ himself. And again, as we mentioned last week, the entire scripture, the entire word of God, if you would, can be titled the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because we know that before the beginning of the, the, beginning of the worlds were laid, that Christ was promised to come to bear our, the iniquity of our sin. And so from the very beginning, from the very creation, the whole purpose has been to, to reveal Christ's redemption to us. And so we know that in Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, that Christ came to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we could receive the adoption as sons. And so, that apex of time, that, that, fullness of, that fullness moment, when Christ came to the earth. And so we have the same purpose here, and that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that revelation was given to the servant of Jesus Christ, and the servant was John. The servant was John. And his, his function was to bear witness. And so, as we looked at that, we saw then his testimony. His testimony was the word of God, the testimony of Christ, and the things which he had seen. It's the same three things that we are to be witnesses of. We are supposed to be declaring, if you would, the message of the word of God. We're supposed to be declaring the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to be declaring to people the things that we have seen. And that is the things that God has done in our life. And so our as we're called, if you would, onto the witness stand of the world, of life, then when the world wants to know who God is and who Jesus Christ is, it should be very easy for us to declare based upon the things that we know. Not the things that we don't know. We don't have to declare those, but the things that we do know. And then secondly, we looked at in chapter 1, the promise that was given. And the promise was the blessing. And the blessing was given to those who hear, those who read, and those who... Anybody remember? Keep. That's right. Do. The, the words of this prophecy. And so, those who read, those who hear, and those who keep the words of this prophecy, there is a promise 
that they will be blessed. And does anybody remember what the motivation was? Why will they be blessed? Why should they, why should they read it? Why should they hear it? Why should they keep it? It's in verse 3. What does it say in verse 3? The time is near. What's the time? What time? The event. What event is near? The second coming of Christ. Christ's return to the earth is near. And think about it. If John stated that almost 2,000 years ago and said that it was near, Christ spoke that it was near to John, how much more near it is today than it was then. His return is imminent. But we saw then also the curse. Now the curse isn't there in chapter 1, verse 3, but rather it comes from the very end of the book in chapter 22 where we're told that if anybody adds or subtracts from, deletes from this word or the word of the revelation, then the curses, the plagues which are written in this book will be added to them as well. And so there is the blessing and there is the curse. And so I mentioned at that time that you know, James 3.1 says, Being that many masters, because such have the greater condemnation. And so, therefore, is the challenge, then, as I go into this, that um, I want to be careful that I am speaking God's word truthfully and honestly. And so, I believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. Well, what does that mean? That means that I believe the Bible means what it says. That I don't have to... I don't have to try to think up some symbolic or special spiritual meaning that's behind it. But rather, I can take God face value at what he said. That if God said this is what he meant, it's what he meant. And so, um, there are many, as we talk about it, who go in and they spiritualize, allegorize, or uh, use the, the word figuratively so that it doesn't say or doesn't mean what it actually says. And we don't want to do that. I said, though, that there was three parts to the outline as we went through the... Um, the things that have been last week, and the third part that we want to talk about today, and that was the presence, the presence, because I wanted to give full attention to this section, because this section is all about Jesus Christ. And many times as we teach and as we preach, as we get together for Bible studies, much of our time, honestly, isn't focused on the major. Many times we focus on the minors. The major, as we talked about in Sunday School today, the, the unifying factor of all unifying factors has to be Jesus Christ. That we are called the church of Jesus Christ. The church of God in Jesus Christ. We have a purpose together, and that is to glorify God through Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we come together, our focus has to be, ought to be, always on Jesus Christ. And though it is, and though we get together for what we refer to as a worship service, many times our worship services are really um, more of a, another teaching service. And so worship, when we gather together as a body, ought to be, if you would, the, the culmination of many people's individual times of worship. Does that make sense? And so when we come together for our worship service, it shouldn't take us time. There shouldn't be a matter of having to be worked up to worship. <coughs> we see that in, um, throughout our, our culture today in many churches where there has to be the upbeat music. And I'm not opposed to certain styles of music, so don't take it that way. But to use certain styles of music 
and certain techniques in order to drum up a feeling, in order to drum up an emotion, in order to drum up a, a sense and aura of worship. But if you read scripture enough, you'll find out that the item that always provokes worship throughout the scripture is always being confronted with the presence of God. Isaiah, when he saw the throne high and lifted up, did what? He fell at his feet. I don't read that there was any prelude to the moment. There was no special music. There was no singing. There was no nothing. <coughs> Rather, he, had, he looked up his eyes and he saw God, and he did what? He worshipped. Thomas, when he saw Jesus come into the room, we don't read that there was any special happenings other than Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas. And Thomas turned around and he looked upon Jesus and what did he do? My Lord and my God. He worshipped. As I go on and on and on, I don't want to. Each time you'll see, whenever somebody comes into the presence of God, they can't help but worship. And so true worship is really that focus upon who God is. And so God is seeking true worshipers. He's seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so I want to encourage you today that as we come through this passage, there can be seemingly that we're taking a lot of time looking at minuscule details. But I want to encourage you, this is the most exciting portion of the book of Revelation. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be John on that day. To be in seclusion on an island and to be studying God's word and to being in prayer and to have Jesus Christ himself come visit me that day. And it's that picture that I feel like we have got to get in our mind. Because it doesn't matter as we go through this whole book of prophecy, if you would, this whole book of end time events. There are going to be some times when we're caught up into some details that it may seem like, well, I hope I'm gone and it doesn't matter to me anyway. But again, if you understand that these are all details that are coming back into the picture of Jesus Christ, it does make sense. And that we have to keep our mind focused on the major, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we see right off the bat the introduction of Jesus Christ here in, in verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches which are at Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now stop for a moment. Because we are given a pronoun to describe who this blessing is coming from. Who is the blessing coming from? Him. Who is Him? Well, Him is the one who was and is and is to come. And so you have to ask yourself, who is this individual? Who is He? Well, He's the one who is and who was and who is to come. 
Now, I know, we got the book answers, right? Whenever you're playing one of those Bible trivia games, the book answer is always God, Jesus, or the Bible, right? And, and you got 90% of them down. So, using the book answers, God, Jesus, or the, the Bible, what do you think the, the answer so far is? Yes. <laughs> good. <laughs> yes, good. God, okay? Our first reaction would be God, but who, who was? Jesus was. I, I would say that it's talking to somebody who, who existed. Secondly, this person is called the faithful witness. Thirdly, we're told that he is what? The firstborn from the dead. Now, this gives us a little bit more information, doesn't it? Because what does firstborn from the dead mean? It means that the individual must have died. And so, therefore, it gives me a little bit more definition about who is and who was and is to come. And so, that means that this individual is somebody who is living now that was dead. And he was not only the one who had died, but he is what? The first one who what? Was resurrected. The first one who has been fully resurrected, the firstborn from the dead. Now we know elsewhere from scripture that who is called the firstborn of the dead? Jesus Christ. He is then also the ruler over the kings of the earth. Think about that statement. I mean, it's just kind of laid out there. It's a fact. It's a truth. But what does that fact mean? That Jesus Christ is the ruler over the kings of the earth. To you as a believer who is going to receive this, this letter from Jesus Christ himself, what does it mean to you? Okay, good. Okay, Romans 13, that we're supposed to submit to all authorities because there is no authority that is not, that's been given except for, has been given by God. Okay, so there's the, the concept that I, should, I need to submit to those authority. Go, go on, is there anything else about it? Good. I don't have to fear the authority. On the other side, I can, I can submit to the authority, but I don't have to fear the authority. Why? Because God overrules all authority. The only thing that the authority can do to me is what? What he allows, what God allows them to do. Now, I mean, it may be that that ruling authority in the world stops my life. But I have to recall that they can't do anything unless God wills it. Is that right? So think about it. When Jesus stood before the ruler of this earth, or at least of the, the, the cultured earth, if you would, and that was, at least in Jerusalem, that was Pilate, right? And so Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Pilate says to him, Don't you know that I have the power to release you? Or to have you crucified? And Jesus says to him what? Yeah, you have no power at all. The only power you have is what's been given to you from above. And so therefore, the ones who handed me over have the greater condemnation. And so Jesus modeled what he's proclaiming. And so in this world, this is a blessing. This is... Message is going to come from the one who is and who was and who is to come. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead, which is a promise. 
that if he was resurrected from the dead, then so why? And he's the one who is the ruler over all the kings of the world. Secondly, we want to look at what he has done. Because we're told that it's from verse 5, and it says, and from Jesus. Now you need to know in the Greek, the word chi is the word meaning and, but it also can mean also or even. It's a, 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 um, a joiner showing likeness. Okay? And so I would actually put in there even. And so you would read coming out of verse 4, if, um, who was and who is and is to come from the seven spirits who are from before his throne, even from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So what are we told that he's done for us? First of all, he has... He loves us. Well, how do we know that he loved us? He washed us. What did he wash us from? Our sins. And how did he wash us from our sins? By his own blood. Isn't that incredible? By this, God's love is commended toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Scarcely for a righteous man will anyone die. But for a sinner? For a wicked individual? Would anybody die for one of them? But God did. God could have, and I mentioned this last week, I think. God could have chosen any way to save us. When God created heavens and the earth, and before he created man, we're told in Ephesians chapter 1, that before he laid the foundations of the world, that he had already determined that Christ was going to die for us. So that means that before God ever created the heavens and the earth, knowing that he was going to make man, man was going to be the crown of his creation, that he knew that man would, would sin, would disobey him would rebel against his, his word. And that man would need a means of redemption, of being brought back in reconciliation, of being brought back into a right relationship with, with God himself. Now at that moment, think about this, so this is before God's ever created heavens and earth, right? So at that moment, as God is formulating his plan, he could have picked any way he wanted to. Was it this past week, last week that I shared about climbing Mount Everest, that he could have said, maybe it was somebody this week I was talking to, but anyways, he could have said that the way of salvation was to, to, to climb up to the top of Mount Everest, and that he had a multitude of sticks up there, of passes into heaven, and that anybody who chose to, 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 to have redemption and to be in, in his presence would have to climb Mount Everest, grab one of these passes, and then they would be able to go into heaven. Couldn't he have done that? He could have. He could have chosen to do anything he, ch he wanted to do. But God determined before he ever created the heavens and the earth that he was going to reveal his love for us by coming and dying for us. And so he established a sacrificial system in the old covenant where the lambs, the bullocks, would have to be offered. The blood would be shed. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That's what God decreed. 
Because God said that the wages of sin is death. That it would be the penalty for us disregarding God, the penalty for us rebelling against God's word, would have to be death. And so, if that was the case, then something would have to die to pay for our sin. But the only perfect sacrifice would be a perfect human sacrifice. But because I'm born in sin, there is no perfect human sacrifice. And so the only way that would be accomplished would be if God himself came into the flesh to be born. And he would have to be born of a virgin. Because otherwise, the father would be human. And then that child that to be born would be a sinner. And so God came, as we just saw in the, during the, the time of Advent, overshadowed Mary, placed a seed within her, and God at that moment began to grow. A phenomenon, the incarnation, the in the flesh of God, growing in the womb of Mary, being born, living the life on the earth for one purpose, and that is to shed his blood so we could be washed by it. So what has he done? He loved us. How did he do it? By washing us by his blood. What was the ultimate goal? To make us kings and priests. This is phenomenal stuff for me. In the day when Christ comes again to reign, we're told that we will reign with him. On the earth. We are kings and priests. In another week from now, we're going to be celebrating if you would, as a nation. A great rite of passage for a man. Barack Obama. Yes? We set up a new king in our land. A new ruler. I can't think, and um, he won at the end of last year the, the vote for how many people, you know, if you could be somebody, anybody you wanted to be, who would you like to be? Barack Obama won it overwhelmingly that people would said that they wanted to be Barack Obama. Why? Now you need to know that for the seven years, eight years prior to that, people said they wanted to be George Bush. It's amazing stuff, okay? Why do you think George Bush won it for seven or eight years in a row and Barack Obama won it this past year? Power. Pow- not just popular, power. They become the ruler of the most powerful nation on the earth. And people envy that. Folks, all I can tell you is, right now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you outrank him. You outrank George Bush. Now hopefully if George Bush, if Barack Obama are believers in Jesus Christ, then they have a kingship beyond the kingship they have right now. But regardless of all that, I outrank George Bush. Why do, I mean, why do we sit in fear of man? I am a priest of the Most High God. Did you ever think about that? 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us, you don't need to go there right now, you can look at this later. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that we are kings and priests, and it tells us the two functions of a priest. 
that we are supposed to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. So we, in a sense, are the go-between man and God. But it then also says that we are supposed to reflect his glory to those that we are about. So as a priest, a priest's job is to mediate between man and God. And so I am supposed to be offering up spiritual sacrifices. Those are called what? Worship and prayer before God on behalf of man. And I am supposed to be representing God to man. What an awesome position. (coughs) Hillary Clinton has been named what? Secretary of State. As the Secretary of State, above all the ambassadors of the United States, Hillary Clinton becomes the chief what? Ambassador. She becomes the chief representative of our land. She is the the chief go-between, if you would, between the United States and all the other lands. That's a pretty powerful position, isn't it? It's a pretty awesome position. But again, let me encourage you. You outrank even her. The kingdom that you represent is an eternal kingdom. Your citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the coming of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile bodies that they may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. We are kings and priests. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for us, washed us with his blood. Why? Because he loved us. I'm supposed to mirror that love to others as well. And so as I consider who Christ is and what he has done, I ask myself, how am I at being a true disciple of Jesus Christ? One who is walking in his steps. Am I loving others as he loved me? Am I seeking to be involved in the sanctification process, if you would, the setting apart of others to himself? Am I out there sharing what Jesus Christ has done so that they can receive the redemption that I've received? So that they as well can be kings and priests and have the adoption of sonship that I have? Who he is. What he has done. Thirdly, we look at what he deserves. What does Jesus Christ deserve? To him be what? Verse 6. To him be glory and dominion. Not the honor. That comes later in chapter 4 and 5. To him be glory and dominion. How long? Forever and ever. What's glory? Now, in its roots, the word, the English, the, I'm sorry, the Greek word, um, doxa, actually means reputation. It means the reputation of somebody. Now, when it was brought to, to talk about God, it takes on the, the connotation of glory, that we picture of glory, because of God's reputation. Do you get it? And so, to him be what? A reputation. You get it? What kind of reputation? A glorious. Do you get it? A, a wonderful awesomeness. Okay, That everybody, what? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. That, that God's name, that Christ's name will be famous. 
will be wonderful. We'll have a reputation. Does it make sense? It will be glory. To him be glory. And to him be what? Dominion. What's dominion? Say again. Kingship. Rule. Reign. And in that domination, a, a ruler doesn't have to dominate necessarily actively, but in a sense he can because he has the what? The power and the reign to do so. But dominion means that you rule over something. Well, what he deserves, what it's called upon for him to receive is the highest, greatest reputation that we can ever afford him. And so Paul says, and so whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, you should do all to what? The glory, or if you understand again that root of it, the reputation of God. That no matter what mundane thing I do, I reflect God. Somehow. If you are His, you are, and we talked about this last week, being a witness. Whether you like it or not, you are a testimony. You are a witness. And the question is, what witness of the glory of Jesus Christ are you being? Is He receiving the glory from you and me that He rightly deserves? The dominion, the rule, the reign. Is he being reflected? Is his reign being reflected in my life? Are you concerned about the things that are going on in the world? Again, remember, he is what? He's a ruler over the kings of the earth, which means he has dominion over who? Everyone. And so again, do I reflect? Do I give him the glory and the dominion? Allowing him to reign in my life. That he rightly deserves. And so finally we look at what he will do. What will he do? Well, Acts 1, we're, we're told here that he will what? Verse 7, behold he is coming with what? Clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who what? pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So we're told that he's going to do what? He's going to come in the clouds, and every eye is going to what? See him. Well, Acts 1, verse 9 to 11, when Jesus ascended, we're told in Acts, not, Acts 1, verse 9 to 11, it says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he, that is Christ, was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Stop for a moment. And let's, this is important, okay, for us foundations, as we start to understand what Revelation is talking about. Okay? If you were those disciples on that day and Jesus was talking to you, what happened? A did a bunch of horses, did a bunch of Roman horses come by? And in the clouds of, of, of those hoofbeats, Jesus disappeared? Is that what occurred? I, I, that sounds mundane, doesn't it? But if you're an amillennialist, that's how you believe Jesus left. And that's how you believe that he, or that he came back. That he came in the clouds of the Roman hoofbeats. When, when, when Jerusalem fell as a city, when Rome came and, and, they, uh, and they sacked Jerusalem, an amillennialist, and you'll be surprised how many amillennialists there are, this is mind-boggling to me, believe that Jesus Christ figuratively came in the clouds of the hoofbeats of the Roman army. So, so there's a reason for me to ask that. What do you picture when you read Acts chapter 1? It says, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken what? 
Up. What does up mean to you? Up. It means up. Okay, good. I, I just want to make sure we all un- literally understand up means this way. It means, and you know, on, on the tape now, they don't understand which way I'm pointing, but I am pointing toward a ceiling. Anyways. And so, and now what? And as he was taken up, what happened? A cloud received him. Well, that means that the cloud must have been what? Above them. It must have been up. It must have been above them. So, when I picture a cloud up above me, I picture what? A cloud. Yeah, I mean, I picture, yeah, I picture a cloud. I picture a sky and a cloud that's there. And so, a cloud received him out of the sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, that gives us, if you had any debate before, this kind of helps us out a little more. They're looking up. Not many of us would debate that heaven is the ground or whether heaven is in the skies, right? So anyways, they looked up toward heaven. As he went up, behold, this is mind-boggling that someone could not take this, understand what this says. Anyways, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Now, isn't this interesting that here they're not even called angels? Remember we talked last week an angel was a messenger? And so sometimes we, we don't understand what a messenger really is because we think literally they're angels and they're not really angels. But here we would have angels and they're not even called angels. They're called men in white apparel. Anyways, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing what? Up. Go figure this one. Anyways, stand gazing up into heaven. This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come how? Something that's sort of similar to this, but not quite exactly the same. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, they'll come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So what do you suppose is going to happen when Jesus comes back? He's going to come from above, from the heavens, in a cloud, to the earth. I mean, it kind of makes sense to me. You know? I don't know. Now, we're told there in verse 7 as well, it says that when he comes in the clouds, every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Now, this is exciting because this is a reference to a prophecy in Zechariah 12, verse 10. We'll look at this again um, in a few weeks as we look at some of the prophecies from the Old Testament. But for now, it's important to us. Where it says, and Yahweh is speaking. Yahweh says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me. Yahweh is speaking. You can go back and check me out on this. Yahweh speaking. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This is exciting. Who are we talking about in Revelation chapter 1? We're talking about Jesus. Literally, we're talking about Jesus, right? He's the first from the, from the dead. He's the one who is and who was and who will be. He's the one who, who, who uh, loved us, who washed us with his blood. Okay? I mean, we can't really get into any more definition of who Jesus Christ is. I mean, he's the one who what? Washed us with his blood. Is that, is that true? That's a true statement, okay? And so now, what he deserves, okay, and what, what he will do is he's going to come in the clouds and he's going to, everyone's going to look upon him as one who they have what? Pierced. But according to Zechariah 12, who is it? It's Yahweh himself. And we know that Yahweh declares in the book of Isaiah, and we're not going to go there right now, but in the book of Isaiah, Yahweh declares that he's not going to share his glory with another. Besides him, there is no God. There was no other God formed, neither will there ever be another God formed. That he himself alone is God. He alone is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he will not share his, share his glory with anybody else. And so here we're told that Yahweh is going to come, and they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And so it's an exciting thing for me who Jesus Christ is. Well, we want to go on then, 
and talking about not just his description, but now we go on about Christ's declaration about himself. And we see in verse 8 that Jesus begins to declare things about himself. What does he declare? Look at verse 7. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is exciting. The Alpha and Omega. What's so big about that? Does anybody know what Alpha and Omega is? A few, few people here should know this. Good. The first and, first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Okay. Now that's important. Because to the Greeks, what he's saying is, I am the what? Beginning and the end. The second part of this is a statement to the Jews who really didn't care about the Alpha and the Omega. And so to them he's saying, I was there from eternity beginning, however you do that, eternity past, and I'm going to be there to eternity future. One of the names of this child who was to be given to us, this son who was to be born, Isaiah 9 verse 6, was that he would be the eternal father. He would be the Aviad. Aviad. Avi is father, and odd is a word which means ongoing. He is the eternal. He's the everlasting one. And so Jesus Christ, this is exciting, he claims to be God here. I want you to build with me on this. You can, Isaiah 41 verse 4, Isaiah 44 verse 6, if you don't have them on your sermon note sheet, you want to write those down, you can Go back and check that one on Isaiah 41, verse 4, and Isaiah 44, verse 6, where Yahweh himself declares that he is the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. Jesus goes on to say, he is the one who is, the one who was, and who is to come. Does that sound familiar? We just saw that in verse 4. And so he is the one who was, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come. And he also then says he is what? Wow. Do you understand this statement? Who is the Almighty? God. And God alone. Only God had a claim to being Almighty. Again, we're told about that, that child who's to be born, that son was to be given, that he would be the mighty God. He would be the, the Al-Gabor. El meaning God, Gabor meaning the one with strength and might. And so Titus says that we talk that he refers to Jesus Christ, the what? Anybody remember? In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that word great there is the word for mighty. And so Paul uses in his writings to Titus the same title. He says, to our mighty God, to the mighty God and our Savior. <coughs> Jesus Christ. God says that besides me, in Isaiah, it says, that besides me there is no Savior. He is the only mighty God. He is the only Savior. But here, Jesus Christ claims to be the Almighty. Now note, then, sum it all up. What does Jesus Christ claim to be? I'm Yahweh. Now I put I am Yahweh, you say, why? Well, what does Yahweh mean? I am that I am. And the Jews would understand who Yahweh was. Now you have to ask yourself, is Yahweh God? And this is, I love talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. Because it all comes down to this. 
they say, Isaiah 43, verse 10, where it says that, You are my witnesses, saith Jehovah, or you are my witnesses, saith Yahweh. But right on the heels in Isaiah 43, verse 10 and verse, verse 11, it says, And besides me there is no God, neither shall there be after me. And so they turn around in John chapter 1 and say that Jesus is a God. But he's not a God. He is God. And so is Jehovah God? Is Yahweh God? And the answer is yes. And so, if Jesus is claiming all these things that are attributed to Yahweh, who must Jesus be claiming to be? This is mind-boggling stuff. This is just so exciting to me when, it, when, it, when I come and I look at this. So, it's the declaration of who he is. And so, in this as well, we move on to the, his entrance now. Because now he's introduced to us who he is. And then we see in the beginning of verse 9 that John is going to start having his, his vision here. And so, in the vision, the first thing that happens in his vision is that Jesus Christ is going to come to him. And we see in his, when he first comes that he's going to give this announcement. And we're going to see in this announcement that his, his announcement is exactly the same thing as John just declared about his person anyway. And that is that he is what? Who is he? I am. And so he says in verse 11, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see then, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Now, What's exciting to me is that Jesus says this one more time before we get into um, his purpose. And that is up in verse um, 17, at the end of verse 17 and into verse 18, he says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and who was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. If God says something once, is it important? It is. If he says it twice, I think he's trying to make us understand that it's important. If three times within the same context, he says something, you better be listening. That's exactly I mean, and so what is Jesus as a whole trying to tell us about himself from his own words? He's God. Do you get it? Again, I don't know how else to go. I mean, people who try to, to paint this any other way. I mean, the Trinity is mind-boggling to me. I can't comprehend it. I, as a math major, I can't understand how 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. Okay? How do you get the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And when they ask me, so when Jesus was on the earth, who was he praying to? And I say he was praying to the Father. And they say, wait a second, I thought he was the Father. And I say, yes, he is the Father. Because he told Philip, have I been so long with you and you haven't recognized me? To see me is to see the Father. So I mean, I understand he is the Father. So who was he praying to? He was praying to himself then. I don't know. He was praying to his Father. All I understand is that he was in the body. He was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But that God wasn't confined to the body. Does that make sense? And so God chose to manifest himself in three ways. As the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Can I fully comprehend it? No. Why? I'm finite. <laughs> I'm a created being and he's the creator. I can't comprehend it. It blows my brain. But the fact is, the Bible what? Says it. And not only does the Word of God say it, but Jesus Christ himself is recorded as saying it. And so I've got a decision to make. So whenever the Mormons come to my door and they challenge me, and I go back to God's Word, and I go to Isaiah 40 to 48, and I go here to the book of Revelation, and I look at what Jesus Christ has said about himself, 
I come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ has to be God. Now, I have one of two options at this point. I either believe it, or I what? I reject the entire Bible. See, for me, it's not that I become a Jew, and I just believe the Messiah hasn't come yet. Because God's word, as we already saw in Zechariah, declares that Yahweh would come and be pierced. Psalm 22 talks about how Jesus' clothes would be divided up. There are so many indicators that Jesus Christ fulfilled what was declared to be happening to God. And so if Jesus Christ isn't God, then no man ever will be. And I'm going to throw away the Bible. And I know the other ones aren't true, because so many other ones are built upon the, the teachings of the Bible. So throw it all out. And I am, of all men, most miserable. So who is Jesus Christ to you? How profound is it to you that Jesus Christ is God? Now let's go on and, and, and talk about his purpose here for a moment. His purpose is to do what? Well, it's what we talked about last week. His purpose in coming was to deliver a message. Now note who the message is to be delivered to. To the churches. To seven churches. Now I think, again, I, I take things literally, but I understand that there is as well a, a concept of um, importance to numbers and such in the Bible. And I think that there's a reason that he chose seven churches. I think the number, we understand that the number seven is the number of perfection. And he said the number of man is going to be six. Six, 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 which is the number of man. And so I think this number of seven has in it, there is a message to these individual churches, yes. But I think he has in it as well as a statement saying, listen, this is the perfect message. And this is a message that I want you all to listen to. And so he writes this letter to the, to the churches because Jesus Christ has a message that he wants his body to hear. He has a message that he wants his church to listen to. And there will be a blessing to those who hear it and keep it. But then he goes on, John goes on now, and says that as he heard this voice, verse 12, that he spoke, he says, I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet. And he begins now to describe what Jesus looks like. And the first thing we see is that he is clothed with a garment down to his feet. And he's girded around his chest, not his waist, but around his chest with a band of gold. With a golden band. We're not told what the garment looks like, but we're told that he is he's covered. He's flowing. But the next one is exciting. It says his head and his hair were as white as wool, like snow. Now, if I was to stop and, and, and just say to you, I'm going to describe somebody, and, and you tell me who it is. And first description I give you is that his head and his hair are as white as wool. It's very brilliant and, and bright, so it almost is hard to look upon. Who would you say that was? God. You'd say it was God. Because that's how God is always described. 
So as we go through this, listen to how Jesus is described. His head and his hair were as white as wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as flames of fire. What is that picture to you? Judgment. I, I just think brilliance. I think, I think that John is trying to describe something that is so bright that it's hard to look upon. But I think as well, when you say it about the judgment, I think insightfulness as well. And I believe that when Jesus, we're told, would be able to look upon somebody, he what? He knew every thought that was there. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Now, if it ended, it said his feet were like, like brass, like fine brass. It could be what? Like burnished brass. You know, like a burnished kind of color. But what does it mean when it's refined in a furnace? It's glowing. It's glorious. Yeah, it's been... It's, a lot of the impurities are pulled out from it. And so this thing is, is, is really burning bright. His voice was as the sound of many waters. One of my favorite places in the world, I have two of them, are very close to each other. Devin, you know where one of those places are? Where, where specifically? In Canada. Matt knows where. The top of, it's actually Ten Mile Falls. Not, not Hidden Falls, Ten Mile Falls. The top of Ten Mile Falls, I've got a picture, maybe one day you'll see it, where Rich Corbin, I think it was Rich Corbin, took a picture of me from up above the falls, and I, had, I have to climb out along these rocks, and where I'm sitting is the water rushing over around me, down this 50-foot precipice to the, to, the, to the lake, to the river. And, and so I've got to go from rock to rock to rock to get to the spot, but I'm sitting there on, on the edge, and I can just kind of do my, my, my swami kind of impressionation and you know, just cross my legs, and I just... It's a great spot just to, to meditate. My other spot is at the foot of these cascades that not every year we can get to, because if the water's real high, we can't get back to it. But the water rushing over these cascades, you just cannot imagine. It's kind of like sitting at the base of the Niagara Falls. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, this, these are cascades, not a fall. Okay. And so, as they're cascading down, there is this one spot where the rocks kind of go down, and they have like this seat sitting there. And I can sit, and the water literally is crashing right at my toes, and it's splashing up on me, the washing of the water by the word. And I can sit there and I can meditate upon God's word and upon his truth and memorize his word and to pray. And if you ever get to go to Canada, you have to be prepared because around lunchtime we have our Bible study and then we have usually about an hour to two hours or so or more of a break. That's the time for guys to get alone and just you spend. If you want to fish, you can fish. If you want to swim, you can swim. But I always remind guys, if, if you waste your time here and say that you can't get alone with God here, it's not a problem with being too busy back home. <coughs> And so to be able to go off for a couple hours and just to meditate. And every time I sit there, I think of this passage. Or the roaring of this water. Somebody could be up behind me calling me. And you know, honestly, I can't hear them. They've got to come real close for me to hear them. Because everything's drowned out by the roar of the water. 
when Jesus Christ speaks, His voice is like the rushing waters coming forth. I want you to remember that. Now, you're going to remember that for a couple months, okay? Because it's important, as we can all remind you of it, when we get into Revelation chapter 10 specifically. So now you can go back there today and, and start to analyze that. But anyways, but there are indicators for us right now of who Jesus Christ is, what he looks like, what his appearance is, so that we can recognize him later. We're told that in his right hand, he had what? Seven stars. Seven stars. Those seven stars represented what? The seven churches. The messengers of the seven churches. And so he held in his right hand these seven stars. What do you think that's an indicator of? Think on something. Not very profound here. He holds in his hand seven stars. The seven stars represent the seven churches. He holds the church in his hand. I mean, okay. Again, can anything, remember John chapter 10, can anything take us out of, out of his hand? No. Isn't this awesome stuff? Okay. He's God. Nothing can take me out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The seven stars are in his hand. And he said, out of his mouth went a what? Sharp two-edged sword. Does that sound familiar like any other scripture? The Word of God, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The Word of God is a sharp and two-edged sword. It's able to divide asunder both the spirit and the, and the soul and the spirit and the bones and the marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. When Jesus Christ goes out, his word goes out. And it's a two-edged sword. Do you know what's special about a two-edged sword? It cuts you both ways. Not many soldiers had a two-edged sword. It costs more to have a two-edged sword. Most soldiers had a one-edged sword, and the other side was blunt. But a soldier who was adept at fighting could not only cut with the four-stroke, he could cut with the backstroke. He was able to use his toll. He was able to use his weapon to the fullest. The Word of God is not a single-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword. And so we're told in the book of Peter that we're supposed to be ready to give an account for the hope that's within us. We're not supposed to be caught unprepared. Well, to be caught unprepared means I didn't prepare, right? So in order to prepare, I need to do what? Read God's word. I need to be ready with his word. And it'll be like a two-edged sword. And I'm able to defend and I'm able to attack with it. Jesus Christ. His mouth is a two-edged sword. And so I ask you, who is Jesus Christ to you? As we looked upon who he declares to be, is he just a good teacher? Is he a great prophet? Or is he God? And if he is God, and you're here today, and you have never received the gift of salvation that he offers... My answer is, duh. Why? If you know he is who he claims to be, then you know that his promises are true as well. And that those who receive him, to those he gives the gift of eternal life, and to those who reject him, he does what? He gives the promise of condemnation. So who do you say Jesus Christ is? Have you had your sins washed by the blood of his sacrifice? 
Are you living like the king and priest that he redeemed you to be? Are you ready to hear what Christ has to share with the churches? Are you teachable? Jesus Christ made it a special point to come and declare to us this message. I can't tell you I've got it all down pat, but I can tell you it's important. Are you ready for the Odyssey that we're about to begin? Next week we begin to look at the messages that Jesus Christ gave to each of these churches. Even though those churches were almost 2,000 years ago, it's amazing again, as we talked about from the book of Corinthians, how those messages are so applicable to us today. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you, Lord, that you have a desire for us to not just be in fear of you, but to have fellowship with you. That before the foundations of the world were laid, that you had determined that you would come to die upon the cross, to pay the penalty of our sins, to wash us from our sins, that we could be kings and priests, that we could be called the sons of God, that we could have free reign coming to you through the veil that has been torn asunder to enter into your presence. Lord, forgive us for treating that complacently, for taking it for granted. Help us to be in awe of who you are. Help us to, to picture what John saw that day and to follow our faces and to give you the worship that you rightly deserve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to, I think it's 330. 330. Are you washed in the blood? Are you washed in the blood? <clears throat>